We each are certainly thankful, no doubt, that we could come together this Sunday morning a way that has certainly God blessed us so very much with the capability of health and the other things that are as well with us as they are today. Denise and I are thankful again for your well wishes on our behalf uh, this past week while in that meeting at Baghdad. And I'm certainly thankful for all the blessings associated with it and delightful also to be back here with, with the Pippin family today. Certainly thankful for the Flat family and their particular uh, blessing of coming uh, all the way to Baghdad and being a part of that meeting. And certainly this morning, there's a question, or at least a topic, that I would invite you to consider with me. You can see it on the wall behind me. How does the Holy Spirit direct? How does the Holy Spirit, in fact, provide direction to one, to all? This opening slide will be one that not only poses that question, but also presents at least a little bit of information surrounding it. You may recall that a few weeks ago, we concluded a series of lessons on the Holy Spirit. In fact, I believe there was 11 lessons in that series, and as we looked at each of them, we were reminded about how much the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit and His effort, His work, His labor, and the promises that come by way of Him. But by the same token, there is still a very real approach that many choose to make toward the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they make some statement along the line of, the Spirit led me to say this, or the Spirit directed me in light of salvation to do this or that. And there are those who feel very, very strongly about this. So strongly, in fact, that it's exceedingly difficult at times to persuade them, even in terms of discussion about it. I thought what you and I might do then for the balance of our lesson this morning is to look somewhat carefully and take one major lesson out of this consideration today. How does the Holy Spirit direct? How does the Holy Spirit provide guidance? Is it by the mechanisms that some say that the Holy Spirit imparts a thought to you or to me or to someone else, directing us to act or to say a certain thing? If that's what happens, we do want to know that. But if that's not what happens, then we need to cement in our thinking so that we'll be prepared to understand what the truth on that subject is. At the bottom of that slide, the question is then, how does the Holy Spirit do this? I hope that you have your Bible with you, and what we're going to do is look at a number of episodes in the Word of God. And so we'll be turning quite a few pages. But as we look at each of them, again, our major lesson is never going to vary. In each one, how does the information present itself? How does the idea get communicated? Let's go back to Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Wasn't it true that there God, of course, had fashioned the man, Adam, and after realizing the man was alone, He, of course, fashioned a woman, Eve, and brought her to the man? We might ask this question. How did God share with Adam and with Eve? How did He give them direction as to what they were to do and how it was to be done? God is all-powerful. If he wished to impart the thought in Adam's mind, or in Eve's, he could have done it. Is that what he did? In Genesis 2, verse 16, God there directly, it is said of him, and the Lord commanded him, or commanded Adam. 
And then you notice what follows. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat. For in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Could God have communicated that information to Adam without ever saying anything to him? Could He have asked the Spirit, impart the thought into Adam's mind that he never eat of that tree? That he never, in fact, partake of that tree? Well, certainly He could. Is that what He did? Absolutely not. He directly gave Adam, through words, these instructions. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. He communicated with words. Would you please note instantly, the Spirit was not used to nudge, to influence, in any way to provide a direction of force to Adam or to Eve. The instruction was given by words. Let's look at the second example. This time you'll notice Noah. Let's go forward five chapters. Genesis chapter 6. Here you and I remember again that Noah had found himself living in a world that was so often remindful of evil. The thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, we're told in Genesis 6 verse 5. And yet there was this pocket of goodness enshrined in the person of Noah and his family. One more time we could ask, so here again there was to be a particular consideration. I wonder how this happened. Did Jehovah dispatch the Spirit to nudge Noah to perhaps do a certain thing or to behave in a certain way, inclusive of building an ark? After all, today you and I are told sometimes individuals will say, the Spirit told me to do this. Again, insisting that I do this. Well, couldn't God have dispatched the Spirit and said, you put the thought in Noah's mind, I'll build this ark. Is that what happened? Well, you and I know exactly that's not what happened. In chapter 6, the text reads in verses 12 and following about this, The Lord commanded Noah, giving him instruction, You build an ark 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high, you pitch it within and out with pitch. You put one door and one window in it. Three stories it's to have. In many ways, rather detailed instructions on the one hand, and yet did you notice it was by words. God communicated via words. And that word was so vital. It was not by influences. It was not by nudges of thinking. It was by words. You might notice that not only in that scene of chapter 6, what about the scene of chapter 7? Chapter 7, verse 1, again, with respect to Noah, God directly told him, you bring all these animals aboard the ark. Well, couldn't God have given Noah that little nudge or that insistence without words? If it had been His will, He could have. But that's not His choice. That has never been His choice. At this point, you'll notice we've looked at two examples, and the simple lesson in each case has been no nudges were used. The Spirit, in fact, was not conveying information by thoughts implanted in the heart. It was by virtue of the words that God had spoken that He expected activity and results. 
Look at the third one. The third one, we now come to Abraham. One more time, we're still in the book of Genesis, but you remember that by this time, centuries have passed, the flood has occurred, and we're now roughly 500 years past the flood. And yet, so it is. that There was a man living in Ur of the Chaldees. He, at that time, with his father and other members of the family, you leave Ur of the Chaldees, and you go to a land that I'll show you. Now, if there was ever a time when it seems like that'd be the perfect time for there to be a nudge implanted in the heart, I think it's time to move my family. I'll leave here and go to a, a different place, a more pleasant, better, godly place. But that's not the way it happened. The God of heaven specifically came to Abraham and said, Leave Ur of the Chaldees and you go to a land I'll show you. And later on, the Hebrew writer would say that he was looking for a better land in a better country whose builder and maker was, of course, different. Needless to say, you'll notice on the slide, that was only one of a number of instances. Later on in chapter 17, verse 1, what about the rite of circumcision? Now that started in the days of Abraham. How did Abraham know to do this? Was there a thought implanted in his mind? Was there some particular consideration of his supposing that God was leading him to think that was better? Oh no. It was the God of heaven who directly told him that you circumcise the male members of your family when they're eight days old. Isn't that remarkable? Three times the lesson has been the same. The Spirit did not, in the days of Genesis at least, convey information by nudges, by influences, by information relative to that kind of thing. You'll notice that Abraham, as well as Noah, these others, they obeyed exactly what was the Word of God. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him. Did you note the language? What God commanded him. It's not what he thought. It's not what he may have perceived as the thing that was the will of God. And of course, Genesis 15, 6 says the same concerning Abraham. Maybe there's another one we should add to this. That scene of Genesis 22. Here, of course, God gave the command, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go to Mount Moriah, offer him to me. Now, without question, Abraham proceeded to do this. He started on the journey, arrived at the place that you and I now would recognize as Mount Moriah. And as he came, as he arrived there, he was prepared to offer his son. And Hebrews 11 would say he did offer him. In his mind, he had already done it. But could we ask this, how did he get this idea? Was it by way of some kind of thought? Was it a premonition? Was it a way of seeing things? Well, of course it wasn't. God told him what to do and even told him, in fact, where to go. It was by words. Five letters, W-O-R-D-S. And in every case so far, God has communicated His will by way of words. We aren't finished. Let's look at the fourth one. This time, let's broaden our consideration to the nation of Israel. When we arrive, of course, a little bit further down the stream of time, 
those descendants of Noah through Abraham had blossomed into a very large group of people. They found themselves in very bad circumstances in Egypt. You'll notice, though, as you begin to appreciate Exodus chapter 3, God did something with respect to, to Moses. Now, Moses is going to be a fantastic and powerful leader of Israel. Where did Moses come up with this idea? Chapter 3, a bush is on fire. And God, with words, communicates to Moses from that bush. It was not a sense in Moses' mind. It was not an influence in his heart. It was not his perspective on anything. It was that God communicated with him precisely and exactly what his will was. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And he commissioned him to do that. And as that chapter closes, Moses began to take that mantle of activity upon him. But you'll notice that that's just one of several verses I've asked you to consider. In Deuteronomy 2 verse 3, God communicated to Moses with words, and He commanded Moses to use those words to share to Israel what He wanted. Do you note the conveyance of words with me? Do you appreciate the sense the Spirit did not influence Moses in some way to share what his perception was about matters? Moses said what the Word of God was. And he knew that because what God had said to him. Words. When you and I communicate with one another, we employ words. Well, when God communicates with us, He has employed words. You'll notice the last one I mentioned there is an even broader one. In fact, later in the Old Testament, that idea is presented. Could I invite you to consider these, old, these prophets? First, in Amos 3, 7. A very powerful statement in which God there says, I have not communicated anything unless I delivered it to my prophets. Now you and I ought to give some careful reflection to that. That means nobody in Israel had nudges from the Spirit, had no information whereby they had a perception on, I need to speak to this person, I need to go to that place. What God said, He had said through the Word which He revealed to the prophets, and there was no other. Now so far our emphasis admittedly has been on the Old Testament. And in Second Chronicles 36, we have a resounding conclusion to this. There, isn't it amazing? Isn't it fantastic? That God, as His people were shortly to go into Babylonian captivity, He directly points, I sent you my messengers, and you ignored them. But what if the people had thought, well, God has spoken to me in a different way. I have this sense. I have this premonition. He has told me to do this. In that passage, God says, I sent my messengers and you mocked them. I didn't send anybody else. I communicated no other way. David is the last example of the Old Testament that we shall consider this morning. And in that example of David, it's the lesson text that was read just a moment ago. 
you and I could devote a great deal of attention to 2 Samuel 23 too, but that David, by inspiration, wrote these words. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. Several questions. David, did you know the Spirit was talking to you? Yes, he did. He said he did. How did the Spirit talk to you, David? It was by words. That's what he said. It was not by thoughts, impressions, nudges, premonitions, or otherwise. The Spirit communicated what He wished David to convey and write by virtue of the words He had given him. There's our word again, words. You and I should be very, very, very impressed that God has communicated with you and I with words. You're holding in your lap a copy of the Bible, a copy of the Word of God. As you and I close that slide, may I say at the very bottom two thoughts and then we'll turn to the New Testament more carefully. The first thought is this, could God have influenced people, be it David, Noah, Adam, Abraham, or anybody in Israel, could He have influenced them in certain ways, if He had wanted to do it that way? Well, certainly He could. God's all-powerful. There's nothing that can be withheld from Him. But the question is, did He do it that way? No. He chose to communicate His will exclusively through words. May I suggest that will form a pattern, a very viable pattern, in fact, for what we're about to see in the New Testament. And the last thing on that slide takes us to 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, which will be the bridge between our Old and New Testament considerations today. Those verses read as follows. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Notice, not the will of man. It's not man's thinking. It is not man's idea. But rather, holy men of God spake, using words, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As often as that verse has rested upon our heart, and we're thankful no doubt for it, let's in fact see some applications of it in ways like this. From this point on, let's give our attention to the New Testament. And our sense is the same. What is the teaching of the Bible relative to the means whereby God communicates His will to us. Can I claim rightfully the Spirit nudges me to talk to that person? The Spirit gives me a sense of doing this or that. Would that be a correct way of looking at things? There are many times when you may think of specific examples of those who in fact operate on the premise I've been discussing so far. Have you ever talked with a denominational individual? And this person, quite often Baptists, strongly believe this. They feel as though God leads me to talk to that person. Something about the nature of salvation or something about godly or Bible things. And God just led me to them. Wholly separate and apart from the Bible a thought planted in their hearts what they believe. We're going to ask very carefully and very exactly, does the Bible teach 
that anything like that happens? If so, when and how? But if not, then what way does God communicate with us? How does He give us the pieces of information about what He wishes is our will to do in service to Him? Let's start with Jesus, certainly the master teacher Himself. And you may notice near the top of that slide, the Lord Himself on several occasions spoke about His mission or what was at least a vital part of that mission. Why don't we start in Mark 1 verse 38. If you'd be turning to that particular passage, we'll at least devote a bit of time to what is said there. Mark 1 verse number 38. Jesus speaking said, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. Jesus, why'd you come to earth? It's easy enough for you and I to say, well, to go to the cross, to shed your precious blood that we might have the opportunity for salvation. And true enough, that would be a fine thing to answer. At this time and place, Lord, why are you here now? And why do you want us to go to the next town? We came to preach. But preaching involves words. It does not involve the sense. No preacher can read the mind of anybody in the audience. That's not been given to us. But yet, to preach has been given to us. To speak the Word of God. Now, let's in fact face it this way. If God had wanted to affect the hearts and minds of people in those other cities without Jesus ever going there, could He have done it? Well, sure He could. Did He choose to do it that way? He did not. He chose to use the medium of the spoken word. And as that medium was employed, Jesus on this occasion determined that's what we must do. Let's add to that another one in Luke 4 verse 43. In that fourth chapter of Luke, notice again the language spoken rather strongly. And He said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I seeing it. The Lord used the word must. It's not as if it was an option to go to those other places. It was an incumbent commission laid upon Him. I must do it. Today, you and I appreciate then, Jesus set before us a rather dramatic example, a preacher. Thus, using words to convey the thought, not sentiment of thought, not considerations relative to one's perception. That's just not the way God has ever done it. This thing concerning Jesus brings us to another one. And maybe in our heart, none is finer or stronger or more poignant than is this one. Let's camp in Acts chapter 9 for a little bit. In the ninth chapter of Acts, we come to the conversion, that well-known scene of Saul of Tarsus. You might recall that here was a man who had in his possession letters permitting him to go to Damascus and to cause trouble for Christians, to imprison them, to in fact bring them back to place for trial. Later on in the Bible, it would say that he wreaked havoc with the church. 
Now, you and I could easily imagine, suppose a man showed up and he had a well-known reputation for causing trouble with Christians. Wouldn't you and I cringe if he showed up? You know, we would arrive at the services hopeful that Saul of Tarsus isn't there because we know what he can do. He has letters whereby he is able to imprison, to make miserable the lives of those who are Christians. And sure enough, he came to Damascus. I have a lot of consideration that the brethren in Damascus were greatly agitated when Saul came to town. And yet, he came to town in a whole different way than they expected. For shortly outside of town, a bright light had shone around him. And Jesus Christ talked to him. And he, in fact, on that very road, came to recognize that the Lord was exactly who that he had said he was. And it was Saul who said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Acts 9 verse 6. Rather than opposing him, rather than fighting against him, Saul was now happy to do whatever the Lord asked of him. We're getting back to the point of asking, so how was the message communicated to Saul? Well, one thing is immediate. Notice he was not saved on the road to Damascus. At that moment when the bright light shone around him, Saul wasn't a saved man. He was penitent. And in fact, for the next three days, he didn't eat a bite. And he prayed earnestly, desiring to know. But do you remember? Jesus had said, you go into the city, and it'll be told you what you must do. So on the road to Damascus, he was not a saved man. And yet he arrives in Damascus now. He was blind. He hadn't eaten a bite. For a long time. And now notice what happened. Here was a man in penitence. He was beside himself. He was agitated so he wanted to be right with God, but at this point he wasn't and he didn't know what to do. If there was ever a time when the Spirit should have nudged him in the way to do what he needed to do, shouldn't this have been it? He wanted to. He was motivated to. He was earnestly, heartfelt, wishing to. How did God communicate with Saul? He equipped a man named Ananias. You go to Saul and tell him what he needs to do. The Spirit didn't operate directly on Saul's heart. The Spirit did not equip him with some thought or premonition, I need to be baptized. Ananias came to him. And said in Acts twenty two sixteen, What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. May I again say, how did the Spirit communicate to Saul? With words? With words. Although I said it before, may we look upon these words and appreciate that they are the means whereby God communicates with us. It is not by premonitions. It's not by nudges and influences of the heart. So far, these two New Testament examples have given us no indication of that. We're going to look at some more. As you and I close that slide, you'll notice that in this case of Ananias and Saul, how strongly the thought was presented. But it seems we are now ready to turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Although much of that chapter might be read, all we'll need is a couple of the verses because it speaks so directly to the challenge before us this morning. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, allow me to read verses 20 and following. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I know we've asked it before, but should we not do it again? If God had wanted to directly implant into the thought of someone what that person needs to do to be saved, couldn't He do it? This individual, perhaps on the outskirts of Africa, couldn't he implant in their thought, you need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized? Couldn't he give them that thought? Well, of course he could. But does he do it that way? By inspiration, verse 21 closes by saying, It pleased God through preaching to save them that believe. God uses words. He communicates His will through words that He's spoken and through those that proclaim those words. Not separate influences and nudges, not premonitions, not these fanciful thoughts that a person may have. That will not do. God has never acted and operated that way. Through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Isn't that also what Paul had written in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and following? I'm debtor to preach it. I'm ready to preach it. Because he knew that was the only means whereby individuals would hear what they needed to hear. Later on, we also notice in Romans chapter 10, in verses 13 and following, Paul there writing was able to say, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Couldn't God implant then in the hearts of anybody what they need to do to call on Him? Well, God could. But what's the next verse say? How shall they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe on Him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? One more time, God has employed His Word and those that proclaim that Word. That's the way He communicates. He does not, nor has He ever, communicated with man by nudges from the Spirit, by movement from the Spirit, other than what the Spirit has written in the form of the Word of God. The Bible does not teach any other means or mechanism. One more thing in the lesson is yours. What about the nature of God Himself? We have seen a host of examples this morning in which God communicated His will to man, be it Adam, all the way down to the New Testament examples, and every time it was in words. Today, God still communicates with us in words. It's just that He doesn't directly speak to us, but rather, as John, 14, or rather John 12, 49 says, it's through this Word. It's through the Word of God. And therefore, we cherish it, we love it, we adore it, we appreciate it, because this is the means of His communication, and there will be no other. God is no respecter of persons, Romans 2, 11. So wouldn't it be true that God would be a respecter of person if He nudged me by the Spirit but didn't nudge you? 
or if he nudged you but not me. But God is no respecter of persons. And Peter said it like this in Acts 10, 34. God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness. But God's commands are righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172, that person is pleasing to God. For that reason, we're ready to reach a conclusion. That means that God does not nudge you or me or anybody else with His Spirit. The influence of the Spirit comes in the words the Spirit has written, the words the Spirit has provided, the words which the Spirit has made available. And therefore, as we follow that Word of God, that's the sole means in which God communicates with us that way. Let's conclude our lesson then like this. We began the lesson by asking, how does God make His will known to you and me? Or to anybody for that matter? Is it by the Spirit giving influence? No. The influence of the Spirit comes only through the Word which the Spirit has authored. The Word which the Spirit has made available. And therefore you and I follow that Word. Didn't Jesus say in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not... He didn't say my thoughts. He didn't say my nudges. He didn't say my premonitions. He said my words. That person will stand before the God of heaven and give an answer for failing in light of those words. I hope we've each been reminded how special the Bible is. It is the means of God's communication of matters of salvation and His will to us today. And so as we close that slide, no other means than that Word, no other mechanism than that Word, despite what some in our world may think, the Bible does not teach that the Spirit nudges or influences in any of these other ways. Today, there might be someone in the audience, someone at this place at this time, that isn't right with God. The only way you and I would know that is by comparing your life to this book. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. All that matters is what this book says because it's the truth. And upon examining your life against that standard, if you find things amiss, they're not amiss because man thinks they are. They're amiss because God says they are. And please realize how urgent that situation is. If you would need to come forward today, we'd be delighted to not only receive you, but to encourage you, to help you, to pray for you. If you'd like to become a Christian, we would start all of that with a brief discussion, insisting upon your belief in Jesus, the repentance of your sins, the confession of the name of Christ, and baptism in water for the remission of sins. Just like they did in the book of Acts and in the other New Testament books, you could become a Christian just like they did. If you have become, though, a Christian, and you've known the blessedness of that kind of life, but as of today, that's not what you're living. The examination shows that, again, the mirror shows a very poor reflection of what the Bible says your life ought to be. If we could pray on your behalf for strength, for encouragement, for forgiveness... It would be our honor, be our delight. We only need you to let us know the way we can help and to do it at once while together we stand and sing.